Good morning and thank you for joining today's Rockefeller Capital Management special client event entitled Perspective on Preparing for the Fall. Today's event is the 10th in our series and will be a conversation between Greg Fleming and Connie Ledoux Book, President of Elon University, Brian Casey, President of Colgate University, and Dr. Mary Schmidt-Campbell, President of Spelman College. Without further ado, please allow me to introduce our President and CEO, Greg Fleming. Thank you, Tom. Good morning, everybody. Clients of Rockefeller Capital Management, our colleagues at Rockefeller, and other friends of Rockefeller. And as Tom said, welcome to the 10th in the series of special client events we've been doing during this historic time in the nation and around the world. Very pleased uh, to have the three guests that we have here today to talk about a topic that's uh, very important to so many people across the country, including multiple members of my household, secondary education. The secondary education industry in the United States employs uh, approximately 4 million people. And I'm fond of saying in dialogue with many that one of the reasons the United States, in my eyes, is the country that it is, is because we lead in secondary education among nations around the world. We have spectacular institutions that take our young people and educate them in ways that help support the economy and really everything about the United States. So today we are very fortunate to have three extraordinary leaders across the secondary education space who have been leading in that space or in other spaces for many, many years. As Tom said, uh, we have Connie Ledoux Book here with us, the president of Elon, Brian Casey, the president of Colgate University, and Dr. Mary Schmidt Campbell, the president of Spelman. Uh, these are extraordinary leaders, all connected to Rockefeller Capital Management in many different ways. Uh, Brian Casey uh, is the president of Colgate since 2016. And I'm proud to say that the one of the connections that uh, we have to Brian and to Colgate is the fact that I'm a graduate of Colgate. Uh, I'll skip the year a uh, number of years ago, uh, as is my wife. Uh, and we have a uh, rising senior in the fall, uh, our daughter Charlotte, who is also attending Colgate University. Uh, Dr. Campbell uh, has an honorary degree from Colgate, which we found out in this process. Uh, and Spelman College and the Rockefeller family have a long and tremendous uh, history and partnership. And I'm going to walk through that for a second. Uh, Spelman College was founded in 1881 as the Atlanta Baptist Female Seminary. In 1884, the name of the college was changed to Spelman Seminary in honor of Mrs. Lauren Laura Spelman Rockefeller and her parents, Harvey Buell and Lucy Henry Spelman, who were longtime activists in the anti-slavery movement. In 1924, the school's name was changed again to Spelman College. Rockefeller Hall, the oldest building on Spelman's campus, was constructed in 1886. The following year, in 1887, the first Spelman class graduated with high school diplomas. The Rockefeller link to Spelman has been consistent uh, since that time. Uh, Dr. Campbell told me that for over 100 years, there was a Rockefeller on the board of Spelman College. By 1972, the Rockefeller family and related philanthropies had given approximately 27 million to the Atlanta University Center, a consortium including Spelman and other historically black colleges. So the link between Spelman College, this wonderful institution, and the Rockefellers, uh, our partners at Rockefeller Capital Management, is a tremendous one. And then lastly, Connie Book, who's uh, the president of Elon uh, since 2018, uh, her uh, uh, lead director, board chair, is Ed Moriarty, who's our chief financial officer. And Ed has had two of his children, Megan and Cole, graduate from Elon. So these are not three schools. There are three wonderful schools, but they're not three schools that we just picked out of a hat. We have uh, tremendous links across Rockefeller with all three institutions. Now I want to give a little bit of a background on each of the three leaders. Uh, and then I'll proceed to uh, uh, talk to each of them in, in uh, sequence. So we're going to talk to Brian Casey first, who is the 17th president of Colgate University, having taken that position in July of 2016. Brian was trained as a lawyer, uh, as I was, uh, Stanford Law School, Davis Polk, and then fortunately for Colgate and for so many students at Colgate, he went in a different direction. He went back to Harvard and got his doctorate uh, in the history of American civilization. He then uh, started a career 
in academia, but on the leadership side. He was the uh, assistant provost at Brown. He returned to Harvard as an associate dean for academic affairs. And then he went on to DePaul University to become president of that school and then joined Colgate in uh, 2016 to be president of Colgate. He's an exceptional leader. Uh, we're very fortunate to have him uh, at the helm at Colgate. Uh, Colgate is entering its third century as a university, uh, and I couldn't be uh, happier, and so many of us couldn't be happier with Brian as the leader. Dr. Mary Schmidt Campbell is the 10th president of Spelman College over that long period of time. She took over in uh, 2015, August 1st, 2015. Um, before that, uh, before coming to Spelman, she had a distinguished career across government, academia, and the arts. Dr. Campbell served as the Dean of the Tisch School of the Arts in New York, at, uh, I'm sorry, at New York University for over two decades. She was the New York City's Cultural Affairs Commissioner, so she served the city. That was under uh, Mayor uh, Koch and Dinkins. Uh, she was appointed by President Barack Obama to be Vice Chair of the President's Committee on the Arts and Humanities in 2009. And there's a specific aspect of her Spelman tenure that I want to highlight. Dr. Campbell's launched Imagine, Invent, Ascend, a bold new strategic vision for the college that builds on Spelman's legendary legacy to educate black women for the 21st century. Bravo. Connie Book. Connie's been a leader in higher education for over two decades, and she's been a, a groundbreaker as well. She's known as an entrepreneurial leader and innovator. She was the first female provost and dean in the Citadel's 175-year history. With her support, the Citadel reached record enrollment for African-American, African-Americans, females, and Latino first-year students. She then became Elon's president on March 1st of 2018, and just for all the Rockefeller people, that was the day we started Rockefeller Capital Management, so we have that in common as well. Uh, she was returning to a university where she had taught for 16 years. So we, we have three extraordinary leaders with us today to talk about the topic that we, we really were focused on was the impact of the health crisis of COVID-19 on secondary education. And that'll be the, the, uh, the uh, fulcrum of what we're going to go through here, but we'll have a good wide ranging discussion with all three of these leaders. So I'm gonna start with Brian, I'll go to Dr. Campbell and then we'll come back to Connie. And I'm gonna try to leave enough time to have a final thought from each of them. So Brian Casey, uh, good morning and uh, welcome. Thank you, Greg. I'm glad to welcome a member of the class of 1985 from Colgate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm the moderator, so I could. <laughs> Actually, I'm a proud graduate of the class of 1985. It just happens to be a long time ago now. Um, so Brian, let's start with a, a macro question. And this is something that all three of you can opine on uh, very, very well. Uh, the impact of COVID-19 on the higher education space and the things that uh, that you and, and uh, Dr. Campbell and Connie, the leadership in higher education, things you've been doing in response to it. Um, well, first of all, thank you for letting me be here and speak on behalf of Colgate. But um, yeah, I, I, I'm a historian of higher education. Before I became an administrator, I actually studied higher education. So I, I, I think I can say from a historical perspective, this is by far the greatest crisis that higher education has faced in decades, if not perhaps a century. And, and I think it's, it's not just a health crisis and it's clearly a financial crisis. And now we clearly have to talk about uh, the nation is um, wrestling with social justice, which is clearly an overlay in all of this. Um, so, you know, we're, we're addressing things that are acute, but, um, I also think this crisis is an accelerator of problems that are already in place. I think in most industries, yes, this is a moment that feels acute, but it just it's accelerating things that are that have been going on for a while. And when I look at higher education, you know, the cost of education, its mission, we've we've seen admission scandals. What is the role of the SAT? Who comes to college? Who can who has access to it? What is it like here? So I look at this crisis as bringing all these things right to the surface. So on the one hand, we're all um, 
worrying about testing and hand sanitizers, but I also think we are wrestling with, here's a moment, what is our mission? And um, I think this moment has come when higher education has not had a leader for what, has not had that compelling person on the scene. Where, where are the Derek Box? Where are the Clark Kerrs? Where are the Ted Hesper, who was on the original Civil Rights Commission? You know, speaking for higher education, so here's a moment when the nation is crying out for someone to say, here's our mission. This is what we're about. And we're gonna get through this crisis with these principles and, and, and this reason for being in place. So I think it's, it's profound and, and maybe we needed that. Maybe, maybe no one wanted this, but maybe we needed this. So. You know, that, Brian, that's a, a good theme to follow. Maybe we needed it. Uh, because in talking to all three of you before this, one of the things that bubbled up is that there was pressure on secondary education coming into this. You know, and is it, at, uh, is it the egalitarian opportunity it used to be? And is it, you know, is the price point, uh, you know, putting it out of reach for certain people? And so, you know, the, the, it, it has now turned into, you know, uh, th this fantastic, and I, you know, I, I call it an industry, but from my vantage point, these 4 million people associated with this, this is the heart of why America is an economic power and, uh, and, uh, and, and does as well as it does in the world. So we need to hold on to this, but it's going to have to be restructured. What will some of that restructuring look like, whether it's driven by health crisis, whether it's driven by you know, the, 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 what's happening in, in the streets today? Where are we going with this? Well, you know, um, the whole issue of who gets to college and are they having equal experiences? You know, we try to paper that over. We try to mask that over because we're on a we're on a beautiful campus together. As soon as this crisis hit, the profound inequality of of our students and their access to the internet, their access to healthcare, their 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 family situations, just we we. We, we thought we were talking about it, but then it became acute and, and visible in ways um, to our own students, to our own students. You know, when you're, when you're here in a bucolic, you know, we're up, as you know very well, we're in a beautiful setting up in the hills of central New York. You can, you can ignore these differences and all of a sudden there they were for everyone to see. And it, um, I think one of the reasons why college students are so focused on what's happening in the nation is it, it came to their it came to their homes in ways that 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 they didn't see six months ago. They didn't see. So um, here we are. We need to look at it. Yeah, and Brian, e even before this, uh, talk a little bit about because you know uh, among others, Charlotte's going to be all over me if I'm not talking about the experience. And you know, are we? Are, are, I, I laugh with. Uh, Dr. Campbell and Connie on this as well. The students want to be back in these settings. So talk a little bit about how the semester went online uh, and, and some of the things that you are, are, uh, are already planning to try to deliver on the, the promise of the community coming back together. Right, well, um, so as you know, we've spoken about this offline, but we surveyed all our students. So how was it when you went online? And, and we thought we saw some interesting demographic shifts where, where were the women more um, diligent in showing up uh, and the men less so? That we, uh, um, we don't know yet, so I'm going to not make any proclamations, but there might be things that are interesting. But, but, we, but at first, we were really heartened by all these messages of, oh, it worked out really well. Our faculty worked so hard. The class, the transition was smooth. But then we realized they had the benefit of cohorts. These students knew each other when they shifted to being on an online format. So, you know, one week they were together, a crazy 10 days later, they found themselves on Zoom, but they already knew their faculty member. They knew each other. So they could fall back into particular rhythms. And so it, it, it worked in a lot of ways. Now we're wondering if we're not back, how do you create community? How, here's a, here are first year students who've never been on a college campus and if we're not online, all of a sudden, college to them is a bunch of screens with people they've never seen, and they're not walking from their class to the dining hall together, and they're not having that first late night conversation about philosophy and, and something that got them really riled up. What happens when that all that goes away? So that's, 
So I don't think we can be heartened by the good responses we had to our online learning. We have to worry about community and connection and and the 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 modes of being. You know, most really good faculty members, in addition to training you how to learn a field, also are training you how to be with each other in complicated conversations. And how do you disagree? So we're worried about that aspect if we're not back together fully because we'll lose something. Yeah. So and I know how hard you're working on this and you know uh, universities are heading in all different directions and, and all three of you are in the middle of this. And frankly, what you just said, I've heard from all three of you, including personally, Dr. Campbell talking about the dislocation in her own life by not being part of the community. Connie saying leadership is even harder in this time. So what are some of the steps that you're focused on uh, in, in terms of trying to deal with uh, how do I pull this community back together physically in right. this incredible space that, that we all love so much in, in upstate New York? So, um, and I'm sure everyone will say the same thing. You know, we're, we started with what would it take to come back? What what are we missing? Just let's start with a gap analysis. And it very clearly emerged that we needed testing. We need places to potentially isolate and uh, quarantine people. Uh, we need ways to have social distancing. And the first two are just hurdles that I think you can get over. They're difficult hurdles to get over. Testing is a very challenging uh, matter right now, and I'm very worried that it will be driven by who has resources. And that's, that's clearly coming to the fore. But social distancing, we built these schools do not have social distancing. We built them so they had to run into each other, that they they ate together, they see each other at a basketball game, they come to a they come to a lecture together. They we we demand that they run into each other. And that's as you said, we're for 200 years we built we built an infrastructure to get them together. It's very, very challenging to think about how to get them apart. Um, we're looking at uh, reopening up a dining hall that you ate in a long time ago that we converted into something else. Uh, the Hall of Presidents will now become potentially another dining hall. We might assign people shifts. You in this dorm, eat in this dining hall at this time. You enter this door and you exit that door. Um, we might say to folks, you, uh, you have to tell us your temperature every day. You have to um, you have to tell us what you're what you're doing, and that is going to be such a shift for our students and for our faculty, and for our faculty. So, Brian, that's a a, a question, and and uh, your faculty will inevitably be listening to this. So uh, uh, keep that in mind. <laughs> uh, for for all three of you as leaders, that's a really important constituency. I mean, you've got faculty, parents, and students. Students actually, in many ways, may be the easiest of those constituents. Um, faculty, how are how did faculty react to online, and and where are faculty? You know, and this might vary by faculty. The the, the perceived um, threat of COVID nineteen, depending upon where the, the the faculty member is in his or her life. But where are faculty? I, I know you can't say a, a blanket statements, but what's the dialogue right uh, with faculty on how did it go in the spring? What are they thinking in the fall? In many ways, the spring was easier because we had we had an enemy um, that, uh, and we were all blameless. It was we must shift now, and so it was. It felt like wartime footing, you know, like here we go. And it was there was a lot of goodwill, and that this was something that came upon us. And here we go. And uh, faculty, you know, it, it, it's it, they love their students. I mean, they they get frustrated by them, but when you're in a classroom and you have your seminar. You love those students, and so you wanted to keep your class going. So the the transition to online learning, I thought, went remarkably well with goodwill. The coming back is a decision, is a planning moment, and I'm looking at my fellow presidents on the screen. Those are complex moments at universities. Um, you mentioned, we, you know, we run multi-constituent enterprises students, parents, alumni, our neighbors, the village of Hamilton, faculty, all of whom believe themselves to be the primary constituent. So, um, you know, so coming back, you know, could you have a moment where you, you say, we're doing this? Sure, you could try that, but you have to have vehicles to which people say, we have come to a deliberate 
consensus. We have thought this through carefully. Um, uh, we have a, a task force right now in reopening and we have trustees on it as well as faculty. And the trustees comment about how there are many hours about setting the stage of what we agree upon and that's faculty are they're trained to be critical and they are trained to question and they are trained to point at weaknesses. So we're not only are we trying to solve a problem, but we need to solve it in a way that's consistent with our academic culture. And we're trying to do it in the next two weeks. So um, uh, if, if this is leadership boot camp, uh, you know, um, <laughs> here we go. So uh, we are we are debating, deliberating, we're criticizing. Um, and I will say this about faculty. They want to come back because this is our mission. They, they, these are people who dedicate their lives to scholarly work, to the work of training students. They want to come back. What they're wrestling with is, is safety and how to do this well. And, and that's the challenge. Yeah. Brian, uh, I'm going to ask Dr. Campbell the opposite uh, because she's got a different a campus in an uh, urban area. But Colgate is in a remote part of upstate New York. Mm -hmm. Helpful, not helpful. I mean, seemingly helpful. But uh, tell me, what, what is that? Uh, what, what is that set up in terms of unique challenges and, and unique advantages? Uh, you know, it, it, there are advantages to it now. You know, um, uh, again, as an historian, uh, these things rise and fall. The, a lot of these liberal arts colleges were built in rural settings purposely to remove to the sense of remove the, the groves of academe. You went away to this bucolic place where you studied. And so that was the ideal. Uh, we've been living in a culture in a country that has really prized urban settings and the excitement of the city so that you know the, the pendulum swims swings the other way. Um, maybe being in a quiet little hamlet in upstate New York suddenly seems appealing because we can still zoom and you, you still get packages delivered the next day. So um, I saw someone the other day who had made a t-shirt for us in the admissions office that said remote is the new black. So you know that's it's the it's the it's the new glamour thing to be remote. So so maybe 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 this will pendulum will swing the other way. Um, you know we will see we will see. So Brian, one uh, one question I'm going to ask all of you, and then I'll uh, move on to uh, Dr. Campbell and to Connie. Um, uh, <clears throat> and it's a difficult question, but you're in the middle of a lot of difficult questions today. Um, but the 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 face of secondary education, and I picked ten years, but you could pick five. You could pick 20, but you, we're not going to get three. It's a difficult question, but there aren't going to be three more informed answers than these three on what it could look like 10 years from now. How does technology factor in online? Uh, so secondary education in 10 years, what does it look like? Um, well, we know we it's going to be demographically radically different. I mean, just I mean, before before COVID, we knew that 10 years from now, the students coming into higher education will be profoundly more diverse than they are right now. So that 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 is facing us. Um, I'm trying to find some silver linings. You know, uh, will technology enhance what we normally do? Instead of saying, oh my God, let's get away from the computer and come back to the classroom. Maybe there's hybrids that will, that will um, benefit us. Maybe the semester, which we've been living with since the 14th semester, uh, century in some ways, maybe that will change slightly. Um, so I, I predict we'll see some some fundamental shifts. Uh, higher education is a remarkably conservative uh, enterprise, so change comes slowly, even though this is an acute time. But I do, we'll see some shifts. But who our students are, we knew this 20 years ago. The demographics of higher education are, are inevitably shifting, COVID or not. Well, Brian, uh, <clears throat> thank you so much. It's terrific to have you. I am coming back to you, so uh, okay. stay there. We're going to move around, and then everybody gets a final thought. Uh, but thank you for uh, all the, that wisdom and those words. Uh, Dr. Campbell, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Greg. Good to be here. Thank you so much for being here. Um, Dr. Campbell, could we uh, uh, kind of transition from where we were with Brian just before the last question, which is uh, uh, the first major leadership challenge you, you had this spring and they keep stacking up. Um, <laughs> But uh, the reaction of you and your leadership team to the health crisis uh, um, and, and talk a little bit about um, some of the things that you've instituted. Uh, you mentioned to me the town halls you do and the attendance at the town halls, including parents, by the way. I didn't 
uh, talk to Brian about uh, parents so we could focus on parents, another important constituent. And by the way, un not unlike faculty, they think they're the most important as well. I, I know that firsthand. Um, so uh, the, the reaction of you and your leadership team to the health crisis. So uh, Greg, every college and university in this country has had uh, uh, similar challenges. That is of going from in-person instruction to online, uh, uprooting residential students and, and having them move out uh, in a matter of a week, um, having to tell the workforce uh, uh, to work at home. So, so there, are, these, there are certain disruptions that are really common to all of us, but for historically black colleges or, minor, or majority serving colleges, uh, whatever impact this crisis has had um, generally, it has been far more acute for us. Our population is 48% Pell eligible. 96% of my students are African-American. So what does that mean? That means the health crisis is hitting them and their families much more uh, disproportionately than everybody else. It means the un they're on the front lines. Their families are the ones who are doing a lot of the frontline work. When unemployment starts to soar, their families are the ones who are most likely to be hit by the impact of unemployment. So not only did we have to deal with the health crisis, but all of these underlying factors, the technology divide, the, the threat uh, to, to health, when returning home, uh, many students would report they simply didn't have space uh, to, to be able to, uh, to do their studies. So we immediately, in addition to having to trans, you know, transition the courses and, and get everybody set up, which went seamlessly, we had to immediately set up an emergency fund. We had to set up an emergency fund because we had housing insecurity, we had food insecurity, we had to uh, purchase uh, hotspots and tech equipment for our students. We had medical expenses that had to be covered, childcare. Um, so it, 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 it was a, we quickly understood this was a crisis for Spelman College, but this was a, a crisis for the black community. And Spelman College resides here in Atlanta, a predominantly black city and in a, uh, uh, a, uh, a predominantly black neighborhood. So all of that amplified all of the issues that all other colleges had. But I will say this, the, the community, and this is where the town halls became absolutely essential. The community more than rose to the occasion. Our, our students, our faculty, our staff, our parents, our alumni. And when we decided to do the town halls, we, we started out by saying, we're going to do them so that we keep our community informed of what's happening. And so they started out with maybe, I don't know, 600 people. They have grown, as I've said, to 1,100. Uh, that was the last one. We've done six of these town halls. And in the course of the town halls, we were getting feedback. We have a Q&A um, section. We permit people to you know, put their questions in. We answer them along the way, but we take all of the questions at the end and we sort through them. And so what this has meant is that as we are doing our planning for the future, we're doing that planning uh, as a community. And that has been absolutely critical. And I will say something different from uh, the way we have uh, planned in the past. And Dr. Campbell, uh, these town halls with, with all these people, you let questions come in. The questions I'm sure range uh, pretty broadly given the set of challenges that you described, which are uh, uh, broad and maybe broader than than most universities have to deal with. So, uh, you know, when those questions come come across, you're you're seeing them real time uh, and and answering them real time for the for the 1,100 people on the phone. Or you know, well, on the answer some of them real time. But at my last town hall, I had 257 questions, so <laughs> we had to do an FAQ uh, at the end. And so we always direct people that that if your question wasn't answered in real time, just consult our FAQ, and we really make uh, do our best to make sure that every single question is answered. That's uh, it's amazing. Uh, you, you have multiple hats, uh, not just you know university president that you're wearing in a community uh, like the community that you're leading at this time. Right. Can you talk, Dr. Campbell, a little bit about um, some of the things we started with Brian, but 
we can even go in a little bit more specificity because again, you, you've got a lot of your students and Brian's and Connie's listening uh, either now or over time. What are some of the issues? You have two broad options uh, for uh, for Spelman in the fall. Maybe you could talk about the broad options and talk about a little bit of the granularity of the things that you're actually dealing with right down to bathrooms, common bathrooms, as you try to plan which direction you go in. Right. So, so we started out with about four options and we quickly narrowed them to two. And they're very simply remain exclusively online or create an opportunity for a low density residential experience uh, in person that would be mixed with online. Because we quickly realized that um, we have 1400 uh, rooms and we typically will have students come back with roommates, um, maybe two or three uh, to an area. That's, that was out of, out of the question, that we'd have to bring back uh, our residential population such that each person was in a single room. So that very quickly limits the number of people you can have on campus. We have 2,100 students. If we can only have six or 700 people on campus, that means you have two thirds of your population that's not that's still going to be um, offline. So we're, we're trying to determine what would that look like? Who would be the students who get to come to campus? How would, and, and, and to all of the things that Brian said, the, the, in a very meticulous way, trying to determine what's the logistic of um, screening, of temperature, taking temperatures, of testing, of isolating an, an, uh, a student who may test positive. Where are you going to put them for quarantine? Where is the quarantine site on your campus? If students need medical care, where are, they, where are you going to, to reference them for the medical care? So the good news for Spelman and the Atlanta University Center is that one of our four colleges in the Atlanta University Center is a world-class medical school, Morehouse School of Medicine, which is run by an extraordinary woman, Dr. Uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice, uh, whose faculty has been doing research on the impact of COVID on our community. And now, as we speak, is testing out what it's like to bring 900 people back to their campus and conduct all of those um, medical screening, monitoring, contact tracing. So we have had their good advice to counsel us uh, in terms of how we, you know, continue to man, how we would manage were we to have a residential option. The, the um, uh, you have partnerships, as you said, with Morehouse Medical, uh, uh, Morehouse School of Medicine. Clark Atlanta University, there's a lot that you're drawing on in the Atlanta uh, uh, area, which is fantastic. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the Morehouse partnership there, but talk a little bit about those partnerships because I think it reinforces uh, not only the uh, educational experience of Spelman students, but just the, the range of things that you're able to accomplish as the leader of Spelman College. So, so Spelman College um, is one of four colleges that make up the Atlanta University Center Consortium. Um, in addition to Spelman, which is a, a school for black women, there's Morehouse College, which is a, an undergraduate school for black men. Um, the, the school that graduated Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., very famous uh, HBCU, and Clark Atlanta University, which is a research university and Morehouse School of Medicine. So that's a pretty extraordinary academic consortium. And we all have for many years been working together uh, as an academic consortium to do programming, dual degree engineering programs, um, data science initiative, um, a, an art history collective. So we, we have these great academic programs, but we also have to mesh operationally. So as Spelman College has been developing its plans, we are in touch every week, the four presidents, to keep each other up to date to make sure that our plans are consistent with each other. So, so this has been, at first I would say it, it was a challenge, but I think it has, it has uh, turned out to be a real strength for us. And I will say this also, as we all know, in the middle of, of a health crisis, we now have a national social crisis that has emerged. 
And so we have been giving some real thought to how then intellectually do we position Spelman with our incoming students, with our returning students, to begin to think about these issues, uh, the health issues along with the social issues, because I think they're all connected. How do we begin to think of this in a way that informs their education and their uh, education here at Spelman College? Yeah, I mean, uh, major issues. And, and again, they're uh, fortunate to have uh, a leader like you in place at this time. You know, you've already been dealing with uh, some of these issues over time, and now they've been accelerated. Brian mentioned the technology divide. Um, you've done some tremendous things with Spelman students and faculty uh, working in local high schools. I want to make sure we bring this out because it, it, it uh, you know, the, the form of giving back in the community is so good for the students and the faculty. Uh, and there's a couple of uh, programs specifically mm -hmm. I want to ask you about, including Spell Read, because uh, right. your focus is reading and math. And you said to me very specifically as we as we talked before this, reading and math leading to filling the technology jobs of the future. The whole you know, right. thing I started with, the, one of the reasons the United States is the United States from an economic standpoint is right. because what you're doing at Spelman College, but also what you're doing in the community there in local uh, high schools. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. So, so this goes back way before COVID, obviously, but 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 we be, we feel very strongly at Spelman that our responsibility is not only to ourselves at, as a college, but to the uh, the community in which we reside. And we, we're in Southwest Atlanta. And one evening, I invited all the all the principals from elementary, middle school, and high school to come have dinner with me. And I asked them the question. I said, "How can we serve you better?" And what I found astonishing is that every single one of them said teach our students to read. So we have a great education department at Spelman. We got our literacy expert to put out a call. 200 Spelman stu students showed up. We trained over 100 of them, sent them out into the community. Over two years, they worked with over 150 students in fifth, sixth, and seventh grade. At the end of the two years, their reading assessment scores had gone up 9%, 17%, and 21%. And they, we reported this out to our board of trustees. And it was kind of an awakening for me because it said to me that we, as our community, our educational community here at Spelman or in the whole, all of the Atlanta University Center, can make meaningful change. And our students, with our students, our faculty, the expertise we have here, we can make meaningful change. Now this doesn't happen, I mean, uh, it had to be funded and we were fortunate to have a, a, a foundation, the Bonner Foundation, that provided the basis for that funding. But uh, that, was a, that was really important for me. And I had a faculty member who about the same time had been working for 19 years with Wayne State on something very similar in math called Math Corps. And she had been part of a program where the college faculty teach the, uh, the, their students who then teach high school students, who then teach middle school students aspects of math in intensive summer sessions. And then through the school year on Saturdays, they continue that, that teaching. And the math proficiency in Detroit, where this has been ongoing for the schools that participate, the proficiency has been extraordinary. Um, so we we know what we can do. We know how we can use our resources as higher education to amplify that impact in the communities in which we reside. And so I just say that because I think that that is a part of higher education has to come to that realization that if we're going to massively change access and and preparedness and uh, uh, for large numbers of underrepresented students, then we have a, a responsibility to do that. Well, Dr. Campbell, given the fact that, and I'm gonna end with this question for you uh, here, given the fact that your students are out in the community so much and this notion of giving back and the education uh, is important, but it's broader, you know, we're in the middle of all of this social unrest and you're right there in, uh, you know, one of the urban centers that that uh, is, is front and center on this. 
what is your dialogue with students around that? And, and uh, you know, th these are not, my point in, in linking it to the last question is these students are, are worldly students. They're out in, in communities helping with reading, helping with math. 33% uh, of your students, I think you said, are commuters. So, uh, you know, in, in the midst of the social unrest, what is your dialogue with uh, students? Well, I think our students are doing exactly what they should be doing. Our students are out in the streets of Atlanta protesting as they should be, as they have the right to, to, to do. Um, our students have been in the community working with their communities and affecting change. And they have been doing this year after year after year. As I've given some thought to this, I've, I've, I've been thinking, you know what? We are, we, and I say Spelman, the Atlanta University Center, our community, we, we are doing we are taking up that responsibility. There are other parts of this country that have to do the same. They, they really have. We had an unfortunate incident with law enforcement. Um, that's unacceptable. We, we've had uh, behaviors uh, against our protesters, which are unacceptable. So there are other aspects of our country and our community that have to take up this responsibility. We're, it's, it's, not, it's, not ours, it's not ours alone. No, you provided real leadership in it, but it yeah. isn't yours alone, and it right. is a national issue. And it, it, right. and, uh, uh, in my lifetime, this is uh, this is as uh, uh, under the microscope on a broad national basis as it's ever been. So, yeah. listen, I, I will come back for one more question, yeah. as I said. So, because uh, uh, I want to give you your ten-year crack, uh, but I wanted to ask you about the this this social unrest, given the front row seat yeah. you have there. Uh, so uh, thank you very much, Dr. Campbell and Connie uh, Book. Welcome. Thanks, Greg. Glad to be here. Great to have you here uh, and to round it out. Uh, uh, Connie, wh where I wanted to start with you, uh, and, and we went into it with Brian and Dr. Campbell a little bit, but um, let's start in any event because you're answering this question. You know, you've got uh, thousands of students in a large community there. And I think Elon is more. I haven't been to Elon, but it's a little bit between uh, the remoteness of Colgate, and it's not urban like uh, Spelman College in Atlanta, so you're kind of in the middle. Um, online versus uh, the the, uh, the community experience. Uh, just your thoughts. We don't have to spend too much time on that, but it is the topic that that really was the genesis of us even thinking we, we need to pull this panel together because the debate rages. We, like the other campuses, are dealing with uh, what's the right thing for Elon. And what's important about that question is that we each, you know, uniquely have our own assets. And so we're thinking about our response based on where our strengths lie. And uh, Elon is a suburban campus, so we it's a good mixture here. We've got urban, rural, and suburban. And so uh, we sit on 600 acres, uh, but we're easy driving distance to great medical centers and research areas. And, and so, uh, of course, we would each say we're in the perfect position for <laughs> dealing with the coronavirus. Uh, so Elon, uh, one thing I will say, Greg, is I'm really proud of the fact that the United States has the most diverse ecosystem of higher education. And, uh, and that is making it possible for us to have a diverse response to how we come back from the coronavirus. I think the worst thing that could happen is if every university did exactly the same thing. Uh, we'll be in better shape if each of us leverages our unique strengths and comes back with what makes the most sense uh, for our universities. I will say too that we haven't said the word yet, but I wanted to introduce it for your listeners, is that higher education operates under the unique system of shared governance. It is uh, the uniqueness and, in my opinion, the strength of higher education. And that's that bottom-up kind of leadership model where everybody has ownership about what's next. And I have found in, uh, in our experience at Elon that the wisdom really is in the group think around these, that uh, you get together, you put the ideas out there, and inevitably you do land because you bring not only the science to it, but the ethics, the, the, the morals, the values of, the of your mission statements and everything unique about your organization. So I have found that that shared governance model is, is the strength of higher education and lands us well in times like these. 
Connie, one, one, one topic uh, that I wanted to explore uh, that, that uh, you've highlighted is the, uh, the relationship between faculty who are typically older and students who are typically 18 to 22 at all three of your, your schools. Uh, and, and I think, um, uh, not to put words in your mouth, but coming into COVID-19, there were already tensions. Um, uh, and then, you know, you put a health crisis out there where uh, the, the disproportionate risk is for uh, people who, who are uh, obviously uh, older. Can you talk a little bit about how that's manifested itself now and, and how that's going to play out going forward? Sure. And, and so I'm going to co combine two thoughts here for you. And one is about this generation we have in college, Generation Z. Um, and just some t some uh, public opinion about higher education that's been out there. And I loved Brian's observation that we're lacking a single voice in higher education. And to be honest, I think that's a really important observation that we should spend some time thinking about in higher education. Why is it that right now we don't have a common voice? Um, and uh, And how could we? get there because we do all support and believe that education is the difference maker right for the future of our country and the world is uh, and we're believers in learning and doing better from that learning uh, so we do have this cultural um, challenge happening nationwide around this generation uh, you've seen that in concepts and stereotypes like snowflakes that got introduced uh, uh, last year and and I can remember going head to head with someone in a in a forum about this concept that we have a weaker generation. And here's a great data point. We did the pass fail option for students here. You could choose to pass fail or take the grade and the majority took the grade, <laughs> you know, and so that just combats right there that some of that uh, uh, you know, public opinion about uh, this generation. I find them to be great problem solvers, hardworking, look at what they have faced and done in the last 90 days. You know, they all uh, switch their learning and there we believe and know that there are multiple ways to learn. Online is certainly one of them and designed well, has good learning outcomes, but the people who attend Elon had chosen a residential model and residential models work. Uh, the research is clear. We have a Center for Engaged Learning here, and the study of higher education is relatively a new discipline. It's not that old. And uh, so we're learning about ourselves in higher education still. And the power of a residential education is rooted on a learning system that's not just faculty to students. It's actually all of us with each other. And so that side by side learning that happens because of the students experience that is seated next to you uh, and the power of the question of that student seated next to you is also equally um, one of the things we think about in a residential model. That's why diversity in our classrooms is so critical and important is it is that it, it absolutely dictates the power of the learning and that includes our faculty and our staff here who are often don't carry the title teacher but they are teaching uh, in their work as well so uh, that residential campus model and so as we just you know these generational differences uh, it really does unfold in front of COVID-19 where we know that the older generation is more vulnerable so we're thinking a lot about that here at Elon and uh, we know too that the one of the outcomes of, of the learning in coronavirus is that this that we have had to take new responsibility for the differences between us right we're being asked to stay home to help others who are different than us who are older than us who may be a different race than us different socioeconomic as we look at all the data and that collective responsibility i think is ringing in uh this generation's ears you know I, and i want to reinforce that it's a personal uh message but i'm raising three in that uh, generation either uh, millennials or generation z and they're anything they and their friends are anything but snowflakes and i think uh you know, Tom Brokaw helped with the greatest generation. My father's a member of that, and he's uh, at 86 still here. Um, you know, who knows how much of that is the way that it gets labeled later on after decades go by. These young people that you all are educating uh, are up to the task uh, and, and are, I don't think are any different uh, 
were more fragile than earlier generations. Uh, Connie, can we stay with, uh, you know, I talked to Dr. Campbell about it and, and her answer was spot on, which is, look, it's a big part of um, Spelman College, our students, the Atlanta area, but this is a national issue. So we've had the, the social unrest. Uh, what is your, and Brian uh, uh, commented on it as well. So just to give you a chance, the dialogue with your students around, you know, we, we started with COVID-19, but we're in a, in a different, uh, different game now uh, around the, the social unrest. Yeah, I, I'm happy to talk about that. And one thing I, I want to um, say first and foremost is the black community deserves deserves our attention to this. Uh, you know, I uh, could not agree more that this has to be, again, a collective shared responsibility to address racism. And we believe here and our mission is education. And that's how we're going to address racism here at Elon University. You know, and each organization needs to be looking at itself and asking, how can I contribute to advancing uh, and uh, the black community, which, uh, you know, no one needs to be shown the evidence, right? We all see it. Uh, and so what can we do and, and not be silent, right? Use this to take action. I will say one of the challenges is that social media is not designed to take on complex issues. Right? It just isn't. It's not designed. And so part of our challenge in higher ed, and, and I can see my <laughs> presidential colleagues smiling as they know where I'm going with this, is that I have found it really challenging is to say, hey, let's stop the social media for a little while. Let's take a deep dive into this complex issue uh, and have some ownership here and set aside the time for the learning that's going to be required to recognize what racism looks like uh, to recognize where our biases live, right? To review the evidence. Um, otherwise, uh, I don't think the fullness of what is required to address uh, racism in the United States will be realized. It cannot be hammered out on social media. It has to be in our classrooms. It has to be in our curriculum, right? And it has to be sustained dialogue. Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more, uh, all three of you, and, and uh, Dr. Campbell and Brian were nodding throughout. Um, just to shift gears a little bit, and we could have done a three-hour session today, um, but Elon's in partnership with other schools uh, that are geographically proximate and, and, and similar schools. You've got Duke, Wake Forest, Davidson, and Elon, and you're, you cross-pollinated COVID-19 task forces. So the reason I wanted to make sure I asked you about that is because that's four big schools We've heard what Dr. Campbell's focused on at Spelman and uh, Brian at Colgate. What is the dialogue among those four schools? What can you talk about publicly that you're planning at this point? It's been a great asset to, and to give credit where it's due, Nathan Hatch, the president of Wake Forest University, engaged us to get our task force leaders together to share these best practices. And it speaks to this issue of needing to work together in higher education. Uh, you know, that we can learn from each other. Duke and Wake operate medical systems um, and Davidson's a, a more rural uh, residential college and Elon is kind of in the middle in our suburban 7,000 student environment. And so we've learned about uh, testing protocols and why we're taking those in our um, different universities, decompression. I would say we're all focused on returning um, just as uh, the other presidents have shared and it's really about how you do it and that you can keep your community healthy and safe and so sharing those best practices as well as the the icons of of college life so what are we going to do when the fraternity has a big party what are we going to do at, about the football game are you having homecoming you know and uh, and actually, Nathan Hatch uh, shared the observation that universities are like land-based cruise ships. And so we all need to uh, ask ourselves, when is the cruise going to dock <laughs> and take on other uh, guests? And uh, when should we just be contained? And so we really are using that model to inspire us in how we contain for the semester. That's great. Um, thank you uh, so much. I'm going to come back to you uh, with the last word, but I want to first go to uh, Brian and then Dr. Campbell uh, and, and then I'll be back. So Brian, um, uh, you, um, you're a tremendous leader and you've been a leader for a long time. Uh, you've been a university president now for uh, over 12 years at two different institutions yeah. and you were in leadership before that. Um, 
we're dealing with uh, historic times. That's how I, I talk about each and every one of the the, uh, the interviews I've done with you know outstanding leaders like yourselves. I say intentionally when I introduce you during these historic times. And I sent a note to our firm uh, uh, earlier in the week around the social unrest, and I talked about you know how we ask our parents or grandparents or historians tell us about that historic time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin biography of the of Roosevelt in the Depression. Um, so we're now living in that, and people are going to write books about this time and about the things happening. So as a leader, the, the social unrest just on top of this, it would have been enough with COVID-19. Now you have COVID-19 and you have a historic moment around social unrest. We have historic moments in the economy. It's, uh, you know, the, the, the country is, is kind of shaking uh, some days. Talk about your leadership through all of that with students and with everybody else. Um, well, I'm not sure I'm going to talk about me because because uh, it's odd to, but I, I um, you know, the the and I want to echo what others have said about we're a system of higher education, and the United States created a diverse, wonderful system, and in in our in our unique ways, whether we're an HBCU or a research university or a small liberal arts college. We come, we gather for a serious purpose. And maybe after decades of US news rankings and what are you building and, and uh, admission scandals, maybe this is a moment where we can say, what is our purpose? And, and the social unrest that we speak about is gonna reveal our purpose, which is that America goes to its campuses to think. And uh, people always think colleges are somehow like, unruly in its noisiness. Well, thinking is unruly and it's noisy. And so um, social movements always start with young people on campuses. So the nation needs to go to its campuses, which is why the call to return in some way, because we got work to do and we should do it in this serious, informed way that we do it on a campus. So it's going to be hard. It's going to be noisy. It's going to be painful. But the nation needs us to be a place to think. And maybe if we can reclaim that space after, as I said, after admission scandals and sports scandals, if we can once again say the nation is thinking with not just its young people, but it's, you know, it's a more diverse and probably the nation goes to think and we will be better off for it. So maybe this is a moment. Leadership is a moment to say, what are our principles? How do we live them? How do we argue them? And how do we manifest them? So this is this could be a good moment. It doesn't feel like it today, but it could be a good moment. Very well said. Dr. Campbell, I'm not going to uh, set the stage. I'm going to let you just add on to that. So so as I, as, as I was listening to Brian, I, I was thinking that, uh, you know, uh, a college like Spelman actually grew out of a, came into being out of a crisis. And the crisis was emancipated slaves need to be, needed to be educated. So historically <laughs> black colleges grew up. And then during the Jim Crow era, when we were completely divided as a country, uh, there was no place else for uh, black people to get a college education except for historically black colleges. And then during the civil rights movement, who were sitting at the lunch tables, who were in the marches, you know, and not only black, historically black colleges, but colleges in general and colleges in general changed radically. They changed their their demographics. They let I was I my uh, alma mater is Swarthmore College. I was among the first class to integrate Swarthmore College. But before that, they only had one or two students come in at a time. So we forget about how segregated our colleges and universities were just 50 years ago, right? So we are always undergoing upheaval and change. And so this is another moment where we have to completely rethink who are we? Whom do we serve? How do we serve them? How, what is true equity? Um, and and, and, and it's a, there's, some, there's some harsh realities we have to face up to, all, all of us. And so I think this is one of those moments and I think we should welcome it. We should create a space for faculty to, to be in the, to, faculty at Spelman certainly have already created that space to have a dialogue, students to have that dialogue, parents. It, this is a moment for, for us as educational institutions to create that space, to make change. Bravo. Uh, Connie, you got the last word. <laughs> Connie, you're on mute. 
this is the I'll just echo that we I feel exactly the same way that this is the trifecta. It's the COVID, it's the social response to George Floyd, and uh, and we have an election this fall. So this semester, upcom this upcoming semester is going to demonstrate uh, uh, higher education and make very visible to uh, the country the work that's unfolding on college campuses. Uh, fantastic. Uh, I can't thank you enough, the three of you. Uh, it was a tremendous session uh, with a real uh, tangible discussion of the issues uh, that we're dealing with in our country today. And that was the genesis of this. We have many regular listeners now. Uh, and the genesis of this is that Rockefeller Capital Management, our mission, part of what we do is to uh, bring good ideas and intellectual capital to our clients. And this is what it's all about. So I can't thank the three of you enough for an extraordinary session. Uh, thank you to uh, our Rockefeller Capital Management clients, colleagues, and friends for being on today. As always, I will end with a quotation before I send everybody off for the weekend. Uh, this quotation uh, is, uh, I picked it because of the quality of the leadership that these three individuals are uh, displaying at such a critical time in history. Uh, they, they have in the past, they are today, and they will going forward. Uh, and the speaker is Harry Truman, former US president. He said, quote, people make history and not the other way around. In periods where there is no leadership, society stands still. Progress occurs when courageous, skillful leaders seize the opportunity to change things for the better. That's what you heard today. That's what's in front of us at our universities. That's what's in front of us as a country, because I remain very optimistic about the United States uh, long term. So many thanks to everybody for joining us. Have a great weekend. We'll talk soon.